Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. This is Kara Cooney, and we're flying without Jordan Galzinski right now because Jordan is in the final years of dissertation writing, and and we may not always have her. But Amber's stepping in. How you doing, Amber? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So today we thought, let's do a discussion on something that's near and dear to my heart. I think yours too, Amber. And try to, to hit something that we started talking about in the ICE debrief podcast. So the, the podcast in which we discussed the International Congress of Egyptologists, otherwise known as ICE, and, and my thoughts about that and what it felt like to be there and what the political zeitgeist was and how there was really a, a diametrically opposed schism that was generationally felt, geographically felt, gender organized as well, that separated itself between people who thought that history needed to be politicized and that any writing of history is political. And those on the other side of the equation, usually those from an older generation or a more traditional society, who feel that history is apolitical and can remain apolitical and that there's no reason to blend modern history and politics with ancient history and politics. And for those of you that know my work, that know my book, When Women Ruled the World, but particularly my most recent book published in 2021, The Good Kings, you will know that I mix ancient and modern politics. And I do so quite freely. And you'll know from my first trade book, The Woman Who Would Be King, that I attempt to hypothesize and learn about what people's decision-making process might be based on my best understanding of the people, the political players, the political system, the domestic space, the ge geography and landscape, the economy, the gender or sexuality of particular people, and, and try to manifest things in that way, understanding that people are people, even though they have different systems. But in short, we find ourselves on really living in a world where you have these diametrically opposed factions, one who thinks that politicizing things is messing with history and imposing your own modern mindset. And then the other side that says, pretending that you're not politicizing history and pretending that you can write an apolitical history is more problematic. And obviously I find myself on the latter side. And so that's what Amber and I are going to talk about today for the next hour or so because I have a hard out. We could probably talk about this for a lot longer. Maybe we'll put in a part two at some point. But Amber, what are, what are your thoughts heading into this? Well, my initial thoughts go all the way back to my undergraduate years whenever I was getting my bachelor's in history. And one of the first classes that you had to take was a, a class on historiography, right? Which asked the question, can you write an, essentially, I guess you could say, a political history, because I think a lot of people, when they say a political history, what they mean is in some way unbiased, right? Uninfluenced mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by these outside forces. And in that class, you essentially learn that most historians agree that you can't. It's impossible, right? You are always mm -hmm. a product of your time and place and your life experiences, right? 
Mm-hmm. But like you say, I think a lot of times scholars try to sort of, you know, we'll just keep that in the back of our mind, but we're really going to look at ourselves as, yes, we're presenting this in a very scholarly, academic, somewhat removed from emotion and experience. I mean, let, let me go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I was going to say it's, it's difficult and you can't really do it. And what do we learn? To me, the difference between uneducated and educated is someone who looks and asks, what are the sources? Where is this coming from? Who is this person who is writing this? What are their influences? Because you know that nothing is uninfluenced, essentially, that's communicating any kind of information. And so this is, I think, what they're talking about. It's so interesting that let's take one, one example. Let's historiographically discuss somebody like Hatshepsut. And if you look back at the scholarship written about Hatshepsut in the 1950s or 60s, then you will see some scholarship that is anti-woman, rather misogynist. And you read it and it's shocking to you because that's not the zeitgeist and the politics in which you now swim. If you read an, a set of articles about Hatshepsut, from the 2000s, you're going to see less of that. You're going to be like, oh, I don't quite see the misogyny. It seems apolitical here. We've left this behind. We're free of it. It's done. But but let me tell you, if you do pick up something from the 1990s or the 2000s and you read about hot shoves, you're like, oh, wow, we've got a different, this is old fashioned. This understanding of binary sexuality is outdated. This way of understanding whether Senemut and Hot Sheps had this hot love affair is, you know, it hasn't been put to rest yet. And then you read something from the 2020s and you're like, oh, okay, now we finally left a political history or poli- sorry, we've left pol- politicizing Hatshepsut behind. We're now clean. We progressed when really it's the water in which you swim now. So you cannot see it. It is invisible to you, particularly if you're a member of the dominant culture. If you live in a white supremacist culture and you're white, then it's usually going to be written by white people and thus you cannot see it. If you're a man, and you're a part of that dominant white male culture, then it will be, you'll be like, oh, okay, this is now apolitical. We have done it. We have progressed. But let me remind you that if you pick up that article in 30 years and you look at it, you'll be like, oh, wow, look, we were thinking about this or that. This has come in from our, that zeitgeist at that time. So from my perspective, Thinking that you can write a political history at all and using that as your goal is just dominant political players or dominant historical writers coming from the dominant society, tricking themselves in self-denial, saying, oh, I can do it. Why can't you do it? And thinking that it's easy. And then also they notice the politicized history when it's written from a feminized voice, feminist voice from a marginalized voice, maybe a black voice or an indigenous voice. And then all of a sudden they're like, why are you politicizing my history? And without understanding that you are politicizing it too, you just can't see it. And because society accepts what it is that you're doing, because you're CNN and not Ebony, it's something that's easier for you to get away with and no one's going to criticize it. So From my perspective, if history is thus politicized with everything that we do and every perspective that we take, might as well be quite open about it and talk about how you're politicizing it in the zeitgeist that you're in. And then it'll be much easier to unravel in 20, 30, 40, 100 years 
are the two put together in a more overt way? Yes, but the two are put together in the 1965 article about Hatshepsut in a secretive, clannish kind of way where you're not supposed to see it. And that's my biggest problem with this, with this issue is this idea that we can tell ourselves these secret, these, you know, these things are going to, are apolitical and they're so, so, so not. No, I think that you make an excellent point. And there are a million examples, right? But just taking Egyptology, you brought up Hatshepsut, right? Early, Mm -hmm. you know, scholarship on Hatshepsut is going to be very blatantly within a past conception, right, of how we should look at a woman in the ancient past. But you can also look at Akhenaten and in particular his religious changes in Egypt. How were those received and studied initially, right, in the It was all cool to call him a monotheist. Exactly. They were all up on it. Some schools and some schools weren't, but basically there was a, a very big focus on that. And it completely evolves until you get to today and you have books like your book that sort of point out that, okay, this is, this was, this was not this beautiful monotheistic blossoming, I, so to speak. I say it's, the archaeology it has called him out and, yeah. <laughs> and revealed that this was an, an, an incredibly cruel era. So there's been a complete evolution. And if you ask me, that's kind of part of the point, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is, is that you study the past in order to learn and ultimately, hopefully change your mind, not solidify some narrative that you encounter. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing and, I want to, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say there are different kinds of sources. So if you're going to be doing a history of Hatshepsut or Ramses II, you're doing a political history. You're working with propagandistic texts, however you understand that very big and heavy word, but you're working with loaded idealizing texts that are putting them in the best light. Or if you're dealing with Cleopatra, you're dealing with a propagandistic loaded text that's putting her in the worst light. And you've got to work with those politics. But if you're dealing with the Dear Medina text, for instance, and you've got a letter written from one guy to another that's talking about reworking a coffin at some point, then, you know, it's, you're going to have a different set of questions to ask. And there's not going to be as much spin. But having said that, looking at Daryl Medina texts from the 20th dynasty, when I first went through them and wrote The Price of Death, and looked at all of these coffin texts, I didn't think of coffin reuse. I, I, it didn't even cross my mind that people would take a person out of a coffin, repaint it, replaster it, not not order, and then reuse it for somebody else. And I, and then when I started to see coffin reuse everywhere in the 20th and 21st dynasty coffins, I'm like, oh my God, I have to look at these texts from that perspective. And this is something that people left out of these texts because they didn't want to put it in. Hey, I'm good. I got this coffin I took from my tomb. I'm going to reuse it. You know, they're not going to put that in there. That's an unsavory bit of information. So don't tell me that a socioeconomic text doesn't have some sort of hidden secretive element to it. This is also part of its political world. And as such, things are not always as they seem. And um, so, yeah, so yeah th- there are other kinds of texts, but even those fall well, into, and, and into certain categories. And part of your criticism of Egyptology in The Good Kings is that they bought into the po- propaganda. They like that narrative. And even when it comes to reuse, again, they like this narrative of, no, of course they weren't going to do this or no, they would have had too much of a moral objection in some way to it. So again, bringing their own personal perspectives and lens to the text. And yeah, the other thing that I wanted to say too is when it comes to to your works, let's say your popular books for sure, people, one of their main points is either 
what they like about it or what they don't like about it is that there's no doubt as to where you stand. Right. So that's either their main criticism or yeah. one of the first things they say that they like about your work. But let me also yeah. add, when you were talking about the cost of death and your progression as you, you studied, I think that your work alone is a great historiographic study within Egyptology because you can see where you are in the cost of death and you can see all the way up to, say, what your new book coming out, Recycling for Death, a complete evolution, right? You've taken in information over time as you study, as you look at coffins, and you change what you're saying about it uh, based on this <laughs> oh information you that you're taking your mind. In. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, isn't that essentially the scientific method? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you make an excellent point. Like, I mean, over the course of your career, you have a whole arc of evolution of you thinking about not just coffin reuse or reuse in general, but Egyptology as a field. So take that point and then say, what was my style and tone when I wrote The Cost of Death? It's from a dissertation. It's highly academic. It's highly footnoted. It's got a tone that's very serious and straight ahead and not like you're on the witness stand. Yes. And it's not political at all. And then you right. take the tone of recycling for death and it has a different tone. It is more strident. It is more persuasive. It is a little angrier in how, in how I'm framing the conversation. And I would like to say that when you then are fighting against the dominant narrative, th that tone, that stridency comes into your work. And then people say, oh, my God, look at she's being political. And this is a it's a small point. It's a nuanced point, but it's really important because when somebody comes in trying to change the narrative, they're the ones accused of messing with of, of bringing politics in, messing with a history that should be kept clean, doing something that is actually wrong in terms of practice and theory. Right. It's a way to when, try to dismiss your work by calling maybe, it Maybe, but it's also it's also how history or anthropology, or any field of the humanities becomes dominated by a, a mindset that is accepted. And when you write and work within the accepted mindset, you don't need to be strident and persuasive and angry. You just make your point and then you move along your way. And it's like, okay, good. You have fit the model. But if you're trying to break the model, that's when people are like, oh no, how dare you be so political and and say these things and particularly where feminism involved is involved it gets it gets really really interesting but but that tone shift and i'm a i'm a white person but i'm a white woman okay so i have to deal with the feminist thing but when you're talking to somebody who's working on nubian history or some sort of central african history and they're working with a comparison to egypt the kind of of pushback that they get from the dominant culture whether it be a white European American culture or an Egyptian culture, it's going, there's going to be plenty there. So when you read something that feels a little more strident, it doesn't mean you dismiss it out of hand. Oh, this person is, is trying to push it. It just means that they're trying to, to move away from a weighted argument in another direction. And it doesn't mean that everyone who seems to be so calm in the weighted area is being apolitical. They're not. You just can't see it. You just yeah. can't recognize it until a whole lot of time goes by. And you'd be like, oh, God, look at all this stuff. Right. I understand what you're saying, but I would argue that you've earned that stridency, that you have a career behind you during which you've traversed a succession of thought, right? I you can know? do that. But then what about a younger person 
who's trying to bring in, because the young, that's where you find these things. And it's funny or horrible that in academia and the way we run it, the way we run this academic world is that the young have to fit into the dominant culture immediately to be successful. They have to immediately subsume any big ideas they have to the old ways of doing something so that they can also be successful. They have to throw out all of that fire, vim and vigor and move it aside, compartmentalize it, put it someplace else and fit into that quote unquote apolitical, which is still very political structure. And it's just this way of, I mean, I just see the machine in my head of you take the people, you put them through the machine and you repackage them into something else. They get spat out the other side as something without that, that ability to really think critically for themselves. And that is what the academic machine tends to reward. And that's one of the saddest things about the system in which we find ourselves in. Yeah, agreed. There is sort of an agreed upon bias that -hmm. you can have within whatever academic field you're looking at. And as you say, if you're within those parameters, you're doing okay. But when you hopefully begin to bust out of that, um, then that's when you run into trouble. But I think what's interesting about some of the work that you've done is how, like you said, contemporaneously, right, it's being called out um, as why do you keep bringing in modern contemporary society? Why do you keep sullying our ancient history with these modern comparisons? Because or this is part of my theory on it, is that people respond much more emotionally to these modern references that you make than mm-hmm. they do to the historical discussion that you're having. And when you bring in Donald Trump into a discussion about ancient Egypt, well, you are ruining my ancient Egyptian high that I have here. I right. was enjoying the story of kings and queens and pharaohs and this far-off land, and you're calling out modern politics, and that doesn't make me feel very good, so will you please stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, taking on these kings critically, And looking at them as authoritarians has upset so many people. I don't know what people expected Ramses II was, if not an authoritarian, but I find it extraordinarily interesting that people want such a positivist story and have accepted such a positivist story and feel okay with it because it's historical. And this is a key point for nationalist movements that are rising today. Nationalism depends on a historical kernel of innocence. And it usually lies in the past. So in the United States, our nationalists often look to the founding fathers and become originalists and talk about how we have to do things the way that these founding fathers did things. And their version of history is a very idealizing and perfected version of history, a very propagandizing version of history. And it's very useful then to have that pure, innocent source, that origin to say, oh, we should be doing things this way. And you use that history as a weapon to then impose it on the the modern world. And you can do this anywhere. You can do this with anything. You can be Mussolini and you can look to the ancient Roman past and bring up this Rome of superiority and clean, manly living, and you can pull it into the modern world. So when people are particularly upset about me calling the pharaohs authoritarians and putting it in that lens, it's probably 
because they are using this story in that way. And whatever their insecurity in this world is, whatever territory they're trying to hold politically, whatever their nationalist ideas are, but wherever they find themselves, this pharaonic story in a positivist lens suits them, serves them, helps them. And when I then pull that away and say, but Ramses II was a populist or Amenhotep III was this sun king that was a part of extraordinary social inequality and it worked in this way and that way. And our society is still patriarchal and works in this way and that way. Then people's heads explode and they're like, don't really, not even the pharaohs. We can't even have the pharaohs. (laughs) But why do you want them? Why do you want them like that? Why do you want them like that? And that's when it gets most interesting. And when, um, you know, for those people who are upset when a Russell Brand gets criticized and they're like, you woke mobs are going to take everything. Well, why do you need Russell Brand to be not criticized? What is it about him that you hold to that helps you to be an apologist for whatever life you're living now? What is it that you love about Bill Maher? What, what is it that you like about whoever has been accused in some Me Too movement? Right. And, and then we can go from there. But it's interesting to see how when accused as you said, of bringing emotionality to an ancient story. And I do do that purposefully. And I say that I'm doing it. I'm like, okay, get ready. And I warn people that I'm going to do it. But the reaction also when I criticize and put kings and political leaders into packages that they can better understand, the reaction is as emotional, viscerally emotional and and quite angry. And and that's as interesting as anything right. else, really. I, I think what you're sort of broaching here is history and self-identity and the mm-hmm. way people use history and the stories of history to construct their own self-identity, their own cultural identity. And I think one of the best things about studying history and why I enjoy it so much is because I do think that it is a way to get a, a greater sense of self and to self-reflect a little bit. You can get a a much fuller sense of who you are, where you come from. You can gain insights about your own life experiences by looking at the past and and studying uh, the past. And I know, take, for example, your, your book, The Woman Who Would Be King. You've said that you couldn't have written that book if you had not become a mother. And that life experience that you had and the experience that you had researching Hatshepsut, at putting that book together, those worked together to create this perspective that you had on this ancient ruler. And as you say, you put it out there, you, you're upfront with it. You're not trying to hide it in the narrative. But to me, that's a more, I don't want to say, I don't know that evolved is necessarily the term to use, not a more evolved form of history, but a more honest form of history, a history that acknowledges your humanity and the humanity of those people that you are studying. It's an interesting thing that when you have certain sources that talk about human emotionality, you can talk about emotions and you can talk about how emotional decisions like falling in love unexpectedly and you make a crazy decision. We all have done it, but we don't like to apply it to history unless perhaps we have a text that lets us do that. So if you have an ancient Roman text, maybe written in Greek, maybe written in Latin about Cleopatra or Mark Antony, and you can read there that there were certain emotions involved in this story, 
then you can be like, ah, yes, clearly these emotions had something to do with this situation and you can bring it in. When you're dealing with an authoritarian regime and not a hyper-competitive political takedown in which human emotionality and the discussion thereof is very useful for you, you can't see the emotions. You look at a, a text about Hatshepsut and Senemut is there, and maybe you're looking at his tomb and it says that he loves his mistress. And you're like, oh, he's in love with her. Or, but there's, it's not there in that text. It's a very formal kind of love. It's a love that a vassal has for the king or the servant has for the master. And it's, it's a respect. It's an obeisance. It's a different kind of thing. So when you're working with texts that wholly remove an emotionality that's not that patriarchal rage, like if there are a thousand words for snow in the Inuit society, there are, there are a whole lot of words for rage and smite in the Egyptian authoritarian hieroglyphic language and ideal uh, and, and symbols to go with that in the hieroglyphic text. When you're talking about other emotions that don't fit into that patriarchal ideal, something like falling in love rather than raging and smashing, then people get, they get really upset. They're like, it's not there in the text. You have to use what's in the text. But I think that writing an emotional history in many ways is writing a history of those who are marginalized within these systems. And that's an interesting thing to think about. So if you were going to write a history of enslavement and all you have are the socioeconomic texts of a sale happening at the slave block at a particular day in South Carolina in a particular place. And you have the sale of a family and you know that that family was split up and went to all of these different places. You don't have the emotions in that text. And yet inserting the necessary emotions into those human actions, whether it's the sale or the or being ripped away and trying to hold on to a family member, whatever it was that happened in that place in that time, not looking at the emotions does a disservice to those marginalized people. Keeping things unemotional is the tool of the person in power. It's kind of like when you have an argument with your partner and you lose, you're getting mad and they're like, oh my God, just calm down. I need you to calm down. You have an anger management problem you need to calm down. And your emotions are considered aberrant, dangerous, problematic, something that needs to be controlled. And that a-emotional history is kind of the same thing as an a-political history because it works for the dominant culture in power. And my history is very emotional on purpose, I think, because it works to galvanize a different kind of thought and to allow some sort of pushback, even though it's thousands of years in the past, but it allows some sort of pushback today in that way. So I'll stand by the emotionality of my, of my work, and I understand that it's there. But I also understand that keeping those softer emotions, those more, I think you use the word empathy, those more empathetic emotions out is exactly how these systems function. If you can give the cold-hearted, steely glaze to that slave block and you just say, look, this isn't, it's personal. It's just business. I just need to sell you and your family in different directions. It's not personal. Let's just all get along here. And that's exactly where I need to go. It's exactly the place I need to go. So yeah, well, yeah, hey, emotionality you know, is everything. You know, I'm totally on board with 
all, everything that you're saying here. And I think that, like you said, people that are uncomfortable with it, as you say, they're uncomfortable with it because it's deviating from the dominant cultural, social, academic line that they have been conditioned to follow. But I also think that for you also is like just studying Egyptology in general is sort of a compulsion. Like, I don't think that you could keep it out of <laughs> what you were writing, even if you tried. Um, like when I did my coffins books and I was comparing everything to the wedding, that the funeral and showing the coffin is like showing the wedding dress at a wedding. It's the best comparison. I've never found a better comparison for how everyone looks back and they're like, look at the bride, look at her dress. And immediately socioeconomic status, whether she's older or younger, whether she's conservative or not, whether she goes to church or doesn't, whether she's going to promise to obey or not, whether she's going to take birth control or not. I mean, you know, all kinds of things about this bride by the dress that she's wearing, geographic placement, ethnic past, even perhaps all kinds of things at a moment, you know it by looking at that dress. And I do think it was the same for Egyptians at a moment going to that funeral and looking at that coffin. They're like, ah, yes, I understand where we are coming from here. So Agreed. And well, and it's also kind of a situation of once you begin to see patterns, things like that reflected in your own contemporary society, you can't unsee it, right? When Once you learn how to see it in the ancient past and you begin to see it in your own life experience, you begin to make those connections. And I think, again, for me, that's the whole point of studying history or, or being a historian in, in any capacity is you're getting a fuller picture of humanity's life on Earth. Uh, but this is also our zeitgeist, Amber. I'm not supposed to be doing this right now, but there are lots of other historians who are doing this who are not supposed to. And if I came up and had my professorship in the 90s and the aughts, I think that I would be much more frustrated than I am. I find myself in a place where history is extraordinarily hot. It's fashionable. It's something that people are compelled to read because they are so fucking upset about the maelstrom of political competition that they find themselves embroiled in, that they need to know what is going to happen next. And one of the best ways for humans to figure out what is going to happen next is to look back at what has happened before. It won't give you all the answers. It's not going to be like, oh, I got in my time machine. I'm able to figure out what's going to happen. You can say, last time this happened and it happened about this many years after. Time seems to be going a little faster now for whatever reason and with technology, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, let's push it a little bit faster and say that this next thing could happen. This is what happened before. And you have all kinds of people looking at history. You have people who are passionately and emotionally looking at history on both the right and the left, using it and weaponizing it and pushing it for their agendas in particular ways. And you have one set of people saying, we must use this history to go back to exactly what we think that mythical past was, and we better do it now or we're all gonna die. And then you have another set of people that saying, we better not do that, that, that mythical past that you're talking about, those founding fathers, they were slaveholders and, and they took and stole indigenous land and committed genocide. So which, you know, we, we are on the other side. There's no mythical founding fathers. We must leave that narrative behind and we must go to something new or we will all die. And <laughs> everyone knows that we will all die 
if we don't do something. And we're all looking at history, but we're all doing it in, again, diametrically opposed ways. And and there is no, we can't talk about the weather these days without it being political for a reason. And so there, you know, this is hot history right now. Look everywhere. Look at any stoic book, any stoic self-help book. Who is that helping and how? Who does it serve? Look at any discussion of Christianity. Is it who what who is the historian writing it? What's their what's their perspective on this Christian Jesus cult? Look at any discussion of Byzantine history and is it about crisis and the Roman Empire falling apart or is it something else? Look at a discussion of the Dark Ages. My God, we just went through this whole thing <laughs> that we put out our Substack about how many times men think about the Roman Empire. And it was so funny to watch these TikToks. Oh, well, yeah, I think about the Roman Empire. I think about it like, you know, I mean, like every day. And she's, wait, what? Hey, I want the follow-up question. How many times do you think of the Byzantine Empire? That's true. I mean, they're kind of Roman extended, if you want. Different capital in Constantinople. But, you know, but it makes sense that men, particularly white men, but not only, would want to think about the Roman Empire because it's a certain kind of mythical power that they want to return to. And the more they know about it, the more they could potentially recreated in their own worlds. And well, so women are looking at a different power. I mean, wh- what did what were the women looking at? Royalty, royal systems, Diana, ancient Egypt. Women were all obsessed with ancient Egypt more than other things. So it's, you know, it's it's really what were you gonna say? Well, I was I was just thinking if we take a different perspective on it, yes, men seem to be gravitating toward ancient Rome for very particular reasons, again, very tied to their own identity and their own idea of how could I improve my own life or my own sense of self. But in a way, it's not wrong to look at history, right, to try to draw lessons and to try to figure out, okay, how might we do better in the future? The problem I think we run into is, as you say, History is it's like the force in Star Wars, right? It could be used for good or evil, right? And so you always are being barraged by all of these different historical narratives. People just want to know, which one do I trust, right? Which one is the one that I need to pay attention to? And that is where I think we're running into social issues because a citizenry that does not understand its own past or doesn't know how to reflect on its own past or or look at these past historical narratives or current historical narratives, it's going to be very difficult for them to have a successful functioning democracy because you can't do that in the moment, right? This is about being able to reflect on big questions about yourself and your place in society and everyone else's place in society. Which is which is why it's key when people say, keep the politics out of history, who's saying it? And many of those same people are then passing laws in Texas and Florida and many other places and many other red states saying, we can't talk about enslavement in, in that way. We can talk about the skills that an enslaved person gained and how it helped them individually in this amazing economy and how they were jobs creators, these enslavers, right? And that these things are actually put into children's textbooks. And I just read about a situation in Houston, independent school district, in which a teacher had to apologize for assigning the Anne Frank diary to her class as something to to discuss. And that is, um, 
that, that's, why was that's, she apologizing just because the nature... because this was this was on a list of books that weren't meant to be taught and i don't know why anne frank in particular is not meant to be a part of history in this particular school but and i can you guys can check up on on that in the houston independent school district i mean on the right and the left there are people that are demonizing on both sides i'm not going to say that everything out there is is true which brings up a very important point that we haven't really hit on yet that there is no history with a capital h it doesn't exist there's no one narrative There is no one narrative and every narrative that we write is a construct. It's a construct of our zeitgeist, our time, our identity, our understanding of what history can do or or should do or should not do. And there is no way of writing a history that includes everything. And this is why historians are like, go back to the source. What's your source text? Did you read it in the original language? If you're just reading it in translation, you're not going to be able to figure it out the way that you want to. You've got to look at the source text. And the more you look at the source text. It's like reading the Bible in all of the languages the Bible is written in rather than reading it in an English translation in a King James version or whatever, because you're going to get the original story more complicated, more nuanced, but you're going to get a better understanding of what's going on. It it doesn't mean that you can't still throw a veil over your eyes and say, oh, I'm not being political. You can, even while reading it in ancient Greek or ancient Egyptian or whatever, you can certainly do this. And I see it every day. But just everyone needs to remember, there's no clean history. It doesn't exist. There's no way to know the whole story. We're always telling a narrative with incomplete information, but it's still something worth doing. Agreed. And, you know, another comparison came up in my mind, which is as a person studying history, reading history, you're sort of like a detective in a closed room mystery, right? Mm-hmm. You go around and hopefully you're going to get each person's narrative, right? Each person's story. What happened? What did they see? We know that there is a thing that happened, right? A murder occurred. But what did each person experience in their witnessing of this murder? And then you as the detective pull all of that information together and you decide for yourself what your own perspective is. And I think that's the point that we're making here is anything that claims to be the great overarching narrative or anything that com- claims to be apolitical, it just, it simply can't be. That's a red flag. And people will correct my work and maybe even write even more emotional history of the work that I've done and be like, no, you can take it further. You didn't take it far enough or whatever it is. There, there are many things that we can do, and it's all a push and pull of the system. There's no, there's no one right way to do it. You know, another thing to bring in on this topic is if you're going to write political history, then you're going to be involved in comparisons. You're going to be involved in some element of universalism, which historians are trained never to do. Historians are trained never to universalize, at least how I was brought up, right? How I was trained. That you look at things contextually within their own little pocket of time and space and say, you have to use like a chaîne d'operatoire um, system and know every little detail of how A went to B, went to C, went to D, went to, you know, and, and so on and so forth within that particularist space. And understand it in all of its particularest detail. And only then, only then, we are told, can you truly understand what is happening in this time and space. How you're supposed to remove your 
modern identity, your modern political upbringing, your your place in the world, your understanding of how power works, your own body and the powers it has. I mean, I don't understand how you can actually do that, but we are taught that the more contextual and particularist we get, the more we embed in our in these worlds and the less we compare, then the cleaner it is. And one of the critiques of my first book, When Women Ruled the World, was that, sorry, one of my critiques of my first book, The Woman Who Would Be King, was that I was universalizing. I was, I dared to compare Hatshepsut and her birth, for instance, to a birth that we had have today. And how, I can't do that, I'm, I am told. I can't do that because I have a modern body or something. I don't know. The, the, the birth is somehow different in the ancient world or modern world. I mean, I'll point out, I pointed this out on the podcast before, but I'll do it again, that I had a birth with no drugs and had a midwife and I was squatting during my birth and then the baby was breech and then everything was like, holy shit. And I got put on a gurney, the lights came on and the doctors came in and it was a whole thing. And I still gave birth naturally. <laughs> which was a a triumph in and of itself that soon turned to all kinds of problems. But I do know what a real birth feels like. I know what that pain is like. I know how long the process takes. I know what it's like when things go bad. It wasn't like the perfect birth. I'm aware of that. And having done that in my body, in my identity, in my place in 2010, I think allowed me to understand what an ancient woman would go through. Is my body riddled with parasites? No. Do I have schistosomiasis? No. Am I dealing with some sort of intestinal scourge at the same time? No. Am I vaccinated? Hells yes. So do I, do I have to deal with all that? No. But I think that I can compare. And my, my final point at the end of this rant is that universalizing comparison is a way of taking things out of the past and de-fetishizing them even decolonializing, if I may use that word, of saying, I think we are like the Egyptians and it's not wrong to say it. And the more we say, oh, the Egyptians can only be understood on their own terms by themselves in a little package, in a little box, is to put them into a fetishized space that that means they can't be, they can't be touched, they can't be disturbed, they can't bump into anybody else even if the Levantine people live right next door, or even if I have the same DNA and body that, that somebody like Hatshepsut would have had, I'm not allowed to talk about that. And, and I rebel against that. I rebel against it outright. And I feel that people telling me I cannot compare and I must not be universalist is a way of, it, it is, in my opinion, verging into a racist, fetishized, colonialized space. Well, it clearly upholds the status quo. You know, mm -hmm. to to compare can call things into question. If you're comparing Mm -hmm. cultures, societies across time, you start to get ideas in question, you know, and they want to defend the status quo in that way. I mean, I don't quite get why we're not supposed to compare truly. Like, we're living within complex society. Since the agricultural revolution, maybe a couple thousand years after that. So most of the planet started to move into complex society 5,000 years ago. And then, you know, it increased in time. Yes, I understand that where I'm living in Los Angeles, complex society didn't arrive until much later with an invasion, arguably, in the 16th century. But if we live in these patriarchal complex societies, 
in which female bodies are are controlled and used for domestic labor and the production of commodified offspring, which is still happening in places where abortion is illegal and forced birth has become the norm again. I don't see why I can't compare. It's the same human body. I don't see why. I understand the social systems and the political systems are different, but on the whole, the the systems are very, very similar. And there I rebel and push back and say the only way that we can get out of this patriarchal morass that we find ourselves in where trees are only of value when they're cut down and made into lumber and we have growth, growth, growth or whatever it is. The only way we can get out of that is by comparing every single one of these complex, civilized, scare quotes, places and seeing what they have in common and what we could do that is different. And maybe going back further into the past, into a prehistorical past, where we don't have textual records, where we have to use different kinds of methods to get to data, archaeological methods, anthropological methods to get to data, and look at things in a much broader, big history way. And and I think we should be allowed to do this. Yeah, no, I obviously I completely agree that comparison, it, it's to me, it's the point. When I was a museum educator, I was never in front of a public group and and I never had a conversation with any member of the public in which I did not bring up some sort of modern comparison or parallel that would help them to understand whatever ancient or past culture we were talking about. So comparison is an absolute must. And to say that you can't compare, one, it sort of emphasizes what we're already seeing in, I think, the field of history today. Everybody's getting more and more specialized. You could say, okay, you're an Egyptologist, but within Egyptology, you have a specialization. And this is true for a lot of other historical fields as well. And so it's almost keep everybody in their little cubicles. Don't really let them compare notes. And again, that's all to the good as far as the status quo goes. It turns down the volume um, on any kind of more interesting questions that people might ask or any criticisms that people might bring up about modern cultures. If it has any kind of value, you know, taking a cautionary approach to comparison, it is just to acknowledge that cultures and societies are different over time. And you do need to make an effort to understand those differences. But if you acknowledge those, once that acknowledgement has been made, I say fair game, leave it all out on the field, make those comparisons, draw those larger conclusions, because one, that's more interesting history. And two, you're going to have a better historical perspective by doing that. I would argue. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I completely agree with you, but it's, it's, I think comparisons are allowed when places touch and interact at the same time. And then they'll be like, okay, let's compare pastoral nomad people in the Eastern desert with Nile valley dwellers and see what we what kinds of comparisons we can make and then a comparison would be allowed because they touch but don't you dare compare a pastoral nomad person here with a pastoral nomad person in the indian subcontinent they are not touching in time and space and why are you doing that we allow it when an overarching theory is brought in so you'll bring in like and maybe we'll allow it if an overarching theory based on 
pastoral nomadism in the Indian subcontinent is brought in and then it's compared to pastoral nomadism in Egypt, then it's allowed. And then you can be able to say, oh, okay, here we have, but only when there's some sort of hard theory that's applied to it. And then you can apply that to the ancient Egyptians. People do that all the time. But to then say, oh, look, women's power is being commodified and abused in this place and this place and this place and this place. And look at these patterns then people's heads explode and they're like, yeah, but it's different. different." I'm like, yeah, I'm saying that. I'm saying it's different in different places, but it's like, you're not allowed to compare because then you're verging into biological determinism. Oh my God, that the female body somehow determines the power you will have. Well, I'm sorry, but let me tell you, and Amber, I know you would hard agree with this, that having had children, there is nothing that makes you more weak and more vulnerable and more dependent on other people in your whole life and more crazy and more emotional and more everything. And don't tell me that's going to give me wads of power. It's going to commodify. It's going to make me subservient to somebody who does not have the body who can produce children like I can. And it's going to then make me think very carefully, do I want to do this again? What kind of a power dynamic am I in? Can I have more than one child? In my case, it was no. And how will this affect me the second time around? I guarantee you, every woman who's had one kid is like, okay, now I have this horrific information. <laughs> How am I going to apply it was, this? It was traumatic. I, like a first was, pregnancy, I, I even if you have a beautiful pregnancy, beautiful, it's still a traumatic experience. And yes, hard fucking agree on that. Like <laughs> once you've had a child or been pregnant, your perspective on society, on your own body, on yourself completely changes because you are forced. Like it is your physical reality, right? Yeah. That your body right now is not like you can't go out and work 10, 12 hour shifts once you reach a certain point. Say yeah. even if you're once you're in labor or whatnot, right? Yeah. I know women work a lot during pregnancy, but there comes a point where you are completely focused on this new life yeah. coming into the world because your body is bringing it and, and making it so. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think in, in that way, what you were saying about the woman who would be king is that that is an undeniable physical and life experience that you had that indelibly changed the way you're going to look at history and what you're studying. And you can't leave that out. To leave it out would be doing a disservice yeah, um, to the people reading the book and also to yourself, right? Because you are changing your perspective as a researcher, as a historian. And to pretend that it didn't is just ridiculous. And how many women in this society that commodifies the products of our body have decided, whether they see it explicitly that way or not, and see it more as their own independent choice, I have decided not to have children, whatever it is, it's still a part of the society in which you live and you've made that choice based on what's available to you with what you see around you. You're making that decision for a reason. Oh, I don't like kids or I can't afford it or I can't go through what my sister went through. Or there, I mean, there's a million different answers, but the very fact that to find power, women have to either knowingly or unknowingly deny that part of their bodily production. And by women, I'm being very broad and I'm also working within a binary construct imposed upon us. The fact that they have to give it up means that there is biological determinism happening all around us. And I'm not 
trying to say you cannot transcend this body, but if one of the ways of transcending this body is limiting the reproductive capacities of that body, then there's some fucking biological determinism going on. And the only way to transcend it is to talk openly about it. Now we're veering off into a different topic that Amber and I are probably going to hit <laughs> at some point in the future. So, Oh, it definitely maybe, deserves its own conversation. Yeah, that's so sure. maybe we'll we'll pull back from that one. But in terms of political politicizing history, the body, gender, gender identity, whether you feel you you have a different gender from what you're being imposed sexually in a binary bodily world, all of these things have a part to play in a history that can be told in a more emotional way and from the perspective of a more marginalized person. And also, I always end up going towards the body or a patriarchal system because these are things that can allow comparisons across time and space like no other. And I find that very interesting. And I run to those places, to those kinds of comparisons. I just, I love it. And I know that that's one place where people get just as butthurt, angry, and emotionally upset as when I tell them that Pharaoh Ramses II is not great. And then they're like, wait, what? And they they get very, very upset. I can't, and this is women telling me, wait, I can't transcend my body. I'm like, no, you can't. But there are many women who can't, you know, a woman in in a red state in in a hyper-traditional religion and a traditional marriage, she's not able to transcend it the way you are right now. And there are millions upon millions of women in the past, present, and future who exist in that reality. And that allows comparison that I would rather run towards than not. So for sort of a, a question to end on, what I want to ask you is, for people who are genuinely curious, right? People pick up these books, as you say, because they're compelled. They want to read about history, whichever kind of history they're interested in, ancient history, military history, whatever it is. And as I mentioned, many people want to know, okay, well, what sources can I trust or what sources can I count on a more nuanced perspective from? And we know that a lot, we've already established every history, every historical narrative has an agenda. So what would your advice to people be when they walk into a bookstore or when they want to learn about a particular aspect of history? How can they figure out which books they really want to pay attention to and which books maybe aren't towing a certain standard? This is such a hard question, Amber. Why have you done this to me? My well, God. I have I, I I've had a moment to think about it because I had the question in my mind. So if you want, I can throw some stuff out there. I mean, I would love for you to. I'll I'll start by saying that people buy or cons or think they're going to read all kinds of books on ancient Egypt in particular that end up being books full of description without any analysis. And they're like, King Tut was buried here and this is an object that was with him and Howard Carter discovered him at this point. It's just fact after fact after fact, which is fine. It's a way of thinking we're writing a political history. It's not, but it's a way for us to think it is. But it's also deadly boring. And it makes us, it makes us not read the book. We look at the pictures and then we never read it. So we buy something or get it from the library or whatever your book consumption, how it works. 
And you're just like, okay, this is boring. And you're like, oh, read it. I should read this. I should read this and good, put all this information in there. But without a narrative that pulls you in, in an emotional way, I dare say you're not really going to absorb it or be able to get through it, which is why so many people like historical fiction. And there you got to be careful too. You want to find a fiction writer who actually does their research and knows what the hell is going on. It's, a, it's one reason I can't read historical fiction that is set in Egypt because I just lose my mind. Like, I can't. I think you should go to where it's interesting, but also if then you're going to a more politicized history, there isn't much out there, to be honest, in, at least not in the ancient Egyptian world. And there it gets more difficult. So what, yeah, Amber, give us your, give us your bomb. What do you, what do you have to say? What I was thinking, I was trying to think of it from a very pragmatic sort of logistical kind of perspective, which is if you want to up your game as far as being able to determine which histories you should, historical narratives you should pay attention to and which you shouldn't, I think that the solution is you have to question the sources and determine which sources you're okay with, the ones that you feel, okay, they've done their research, they are taking into account maybe multiple narratives, whatever. So essentially what is what I said earlier, which is the difference between being uneducated and educated, which is to just simply question the source. Where are they coming from? So that you can determine essentially what their biases are or may be. And once you know that, have fun, right? Consume yeah. all of the history narratives you want, but then you know what they're laying out there and you know what you are going to take away from them, yeah. right? And so whether it's a Netflix documentary and you're seeing doctor or professor. I don't know about you, Kara, but I've met a lot of people with PhDs who are idiots. <laughs> I have too. I have and too. so that that is not a rubber stamp. Look at them. Look at their work. What have they done? What kinds of things are they saying? And what kind of things is the critical. production team getting them to say as opposed to what they might right, rather exactly, say? Right, exactly. Because, or... oh, yes, of course. There's always, yes. there's always an agenda. And so I would say practice your skills on determining what people's bias or agenda is going to be. And then you're going to be a lot more comfortable in the sewer water, so to speak. And you'll be able to pick out the diamonds in the rough from the rest of the detritus around it. What, one of the biggest problems skill, that I was just talking, essentially. I was just talking to Bob Cargill about this on his podcast, so you can check him out and us out on YouTube. But we were talking about how Ancient Aliens is so entertaining and how when he was on there, he was the skeptic. And they would be like, can you not be so hard? Because then people don't like it when we destroy the story. And they could actually tell in the production team at Ancient Aliens that the more they dialed it bent down to skeptic, the less people watched. People didn't want their bubbles burst. They didn't want their beautiful story to be taken. They wanted the awesome, crazy story that the pyramids are electric devices that produce electricity, I don't know, from their own side, whatever. And um, and it makes them very angry to lose this. But there are some histories that are emotional, that pull you in, that are super interesting, that aren't all about ancient aliens. And all. they do exist. They're out there. And also, one of the most fun things to do is, for me, is to think, oh, what about this time period? Or what about this particular person? And then I'll Google it. Go to Wikipedia. I give money to Jimmy Wales because I think Wikipedia is a wonderful resource. AI, I play with every now and then and see what their answer is for a particular time period in history. And it, it, you got to be careful. <laughs> you got to be careful. It's not meant to be correct. And there is no apolitical history. And AI will teach you that. 
very quickly because it's going to scrape the internet and find all kinds of things. But when you're on Wikipedia and you go down to the bottom of the page, then you're going to have links to different online resources that collect ancient texts and translation. And you're going to be able to go and read letters, look at pictures, look at data. And there, there's a lot more data on the internet than you know. And then you go down a rabbit hole of, oh my God, how many times in the tomb, in Theban tombs, does somebody have that pose or that outfit or is doing that particular ritual? And then you can go down into really interesting research questions and things get more interesting rather than not. You just need to have... You need to have some sort of basis for what it is you're looking at before you can really ask those more difficult right. questions. Right. And, and admittedly, what we're talking about is something that probably a lot of people are listening like, I don't have time to go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to vet mm-hmm. these sources. Don't publishers do that? No, they don't. But so I would say a shortcut, a little bit of a shorthand to all of this is also to be a little bit more self-aware. And where what are you looking for when you pick up a book? Mm-hmm. A, a history book. Are you looking at reaffirming part of your identity? Are you looking at learning more about your own identity? What are you coming to history for? And if you're honest with yourself about that, I think that will go a, a long way as well. As I said, history is a way to become more self-aware in many ways. And if you're honest with yourself about why are you thinking about ancient Rome every seven hours, (laughs) like some of these men, then you're going to know, oh, I'm picking up this book on stoicism because I'm really looking for what does it mean to be a man in today's society? What do I think it means to be a man in today's society? And so if you start to, like I said, be a little bit more transparent with yourself, that's going to also change the way you're looking at these different historical narratives that you might encounter or pick up. If you are flipping on a Netflix documentary about World War II, why are you doing that? What is drawing you to that? What do you hope to get from it? And and I think that is a way for you to, without going down a rabbit hole, start to really look at and think about the historical narratives that you're consuming. Yeah. Yeah, this is all really true. And while you're saying that, I'm like, why do I like ancient Egypt? <laughs> Why am I, why do I do this? Why do I do both? I think the best, the best you've ever, or the closest you've ever gotten is that it's just a compulsion. It's like, you just, you you can't help yourself. I used to get that question all the time growing up. Can you imagine? Nioga, Illinois, and they're like, what is Egyptology? Why? why? Yeah, exactly. It's like, why? It's like, I don't know. I picked up a book and it intrigued me. And, And then I picked up another book. And I just kept going and going and going. It's a certain mind, I think, that is attracted to history. And it's just, if you don't have it, it's hard to communicate the essence of it or really what it is. Like you either recognize it or you don't. Okay. So in some ways, ancient Egypt is this for me. And I'm going to bring in some real modern parallels. You know how I hate Instagram, Amber, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't look at all of these. I hate it. And they're all these beautifully curated people and they're all like doing their selfies and they're all so perfect. But I do like Instagram when I go on to pick shit apart and I'm like, oh my God, look at this person. 
trying to be this amazing influencer in this particular way. And then I'm there with at a party. I always pull out Instagram, as you know, Amber, like at a party to go, oh my God, look at what, what she's posting <laughs> Exactly. Or look at, and then I'm very interested. And I will say that ancient Egypt is kind of like Instagram. It's very visual. It's very curated. It's very perfected and, you know, everyone's, everyone's got a glossy sheen of beauty. It's also nice. No one's telling the truth. This is not Twitter. That's ancient Rome. <laughs> it's like fucking It's true. Kind of a cesspool, right? You know, and you've got your bro. I don't, I don't know what Facebook there. is. What's Facebook? It's just Amer- America. But like, if I'm your crazy that, uncle's backyard <laughs> barbecue is what. Facebook is. is what Facebook is. But if, if Twitter is ancient Rome and Instagram is Egypt, then I like to like jump into the Instagram and be like, okay, did you have a ring stand? Are you like just unironically posting this shit at your resort pass? Uh, are, do your kids always look like this? Are you a trad wife for fun or because you have to be? And are you making money? And that's where I get all anthropological and shit. I was going like, to say I, the anthropologist in you, you know, it comes I can't out. can't help it. It's, it's ugly head every every now and then. I read Anne Helen Peterson on Substack and she had this whole thing on trad wives. And I went on an Instagram rabbit hole because I'm like, oh my God, look at these trad wives and all of the things they say. Super scary. And then I went into the, the ballerina farm, which is an LDS trad wife with seven children, probably an eighth on the way. I have no idea. Super skinny, hot, blonde, just one Mrs. America. But anyway... And and I'm like, oh my God, she's making a sourdough. I want to watch this. And I'm watching and, and I'm pulled in in the same way that ancient Egypt pulls me in. And I'm like, oh my God, isn't Amenhotep the third, the most beautiful fairy you've ever seen? I love him. And the fact that some Instagram can do that to me, whatever, but that Instagram works on our minds that way. I love to see that ancient Egypt works on our minds that way. And um, it's extraordinarily powerful. And and um, there, I just did it. I did it. There again. you go. That's a, that's I a great perspective. I compared Egypt to Instagram. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to send you a link in the article I just read. It was about celebrity apologies and mm. how they're dressed, what their background is. Um, do they wear makeup? Do they not wear makeup when they're apologizing for making some sort of social well, You know pop. I could get behind that. Oh, I mean, oh and, yeah, you, and, would, you would love it. Yes. And, you know, when I follow like Anne Helen Peterson, Liz Lenz and these, these women on Substack, it's so interesting because they go into Instagram as a cultural anthropological examination. And that's so interesting to me. And that's what I do with ancient Egypt. That's exactly what I do. I'm like, oh, this person is, is showing themselves in power. Well, what is their power really like? How are they setting this up? Where is their ring light? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, it's actually, I think it's actually a, a great comparison and uh, very on brand for you. <laughs> but speaking, speaking of Substack, everybody yeah. should definitely be checking out ancientnow.substack.com. We are growing fast. We are, like, we're growing. We're, we're, more content is coming yeah. more frequently. And podcasts like this particular episode hopefully will evolve into perhaps future Substack posts from you. Mm-hmm. And the links, you guys. I mean, everything that's ancient that comes out, we're always collecting links. We put all those in there. So anything that's happening in the ancient world that's presented in the media is is we're we're going to pull as much of it as we can, really good links, and and put those in there for you to consume and get your hit of what's coming out of the ground in the past week. Definitely. Excellent. Well, this was super fun, Amber. Thank you. Yeah. And you kept it on time for my 1 p.m. I know you've got your heart out. It's just fast approaching. <laughs> so 
We did good. So let's call it, and I'll say this is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.